Power hour. Power hour. Coal, wind power, nuclear power, natural gas, solar power, ethanol, oil. Power hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein, resident fellow at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Welcome to Power Hour, the show that explores today's top energy issues with today's top energy experts. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, we're going to talk about oil, more specifically, the theory of peak oil. Now, oil is the most versatile commodity in our economy. We use it whenever we drive somewhere, whenever we order a package from Amazon, whenever we use oil-based materials like plastic or polyester or fertilizer. But for a long time, prominent people have been claiming that we're on the verge of running out of it. In 1939, for instance, the U.S. Department of the Interior declared that the U.S. had oil, quote, reserves to last only 13 years. Twelve years later, in 1951, the Department of the Interior declared that the U.S. had, wait for it, reserves to last 13 years. After that, production boomed. In 1978, Jimmy Carter sounded the warning bell again. He said, quote, we could use up all the proven reserves of oil in the entire world by the end of the next decade. What happened? In the coming decades, production skyrocketed and prices fell. Now, since the beginning of the oil industry, people, including highly respected geologists, have forecast that we're going to run out of oil any day now, that our ability to produce oil will peak, and that as production falls after the peak, oil prices will skyrocket, inflicting mass destruction on the global economy. And now, with the price of oil rising in recent years, advocates of peak oil theory are claiming once again that we're running out of oil. Geologist Colin Campbell, one prominent uh, advocate of peak oil, says, We are now entering the second half of the oil age and face the relentless decline of production imposed by nature. Oil banker Matthew Simmons says, Oil is not renewable and will peak. Discovering the date is the only open question. We might now be beyond the peak. Ignoring this issue is dangerous folly. Wake-up time has arrived. End quote. And wake-up time means that cheap energy will become a theme of the past. Uh, Simmons says that, quote, the globalization model based on cheap energy was flawed, unquote. He and others advocate massive government intervention to wean us off oil and avert catastrophe. Are Simmons, Campbell, and other peak oilers right? Is our use of oil leading us off a cliff? On this month's Power Hour, here to help us untangle these questions is Michael Lynch, an economist and oil forecaster with decades of experience studying what makes oil production rise and fall. And he's also one of the most prominent critics of peak oil. Mr. Lynch's work has included computer modeling of the world oil market and estimation of the economics of supply for both world oil and natural gas. He's also studied market behavior under normal and disrupted, and disrupted conditions. He's also given testimony and advice to committees of the U.S. Congress and the United Nations, the World Bank, and the International Energy Agency. And finally, he's served as Director of Asian Energy and Security at the Center for Interna- International Studies at MIT. 
Now, there are many commentators on peak oil, but the reason I chose Michael Lynch in particular is that he is a true expert in oil economics, someone who works in the trenches day in, day out, seeing how oil markets work. And at the same time, he has a lot of experience in breaking down these issues so that anyone can understand them, whether he's speaking at an international conference or writing a guest piece for the New York Times. So with that introduction, let's get to it. A conversation with Michael Lynch about peak oil coming up next. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. All right, we're here with Michael Lynch, president of Strategic Energy and Economic Research and one of the world's leading commentators on peak oil. Michael, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me, Alex. Now, we hear a lot of discussion in the news, especially when oil prices rise, that we may have reached peak oil. So we're going to spend a lot of the program talking about uh, peak oil, peak oil theory itself. But first, let's talk about the recent price rise. What are the main variables in this particular price rise? And then more broadly, what are the main variables that cause prices to go up and down in the oil market in general? Well, I, th- I think the first lesson is uh, the one that John Maynard Keynes learned decades ago, which is that prices are not driven by economics, they're driven by what the traders think the economics are. Um, so, you know, trader psychology and even trader ignorance can be very important factors in driving the price. Uh, what we've seen over the last uh, six months or so is first uh, an increase from 70 to uh, 85 or so because apparently because of all of the increased liquidity in financial markets. You know, the Fed pumped a lot of money out into markets, and some of it went into commodities like gold and oil. Uh, More recently, you know, we had a bump up because uh, the Egyptian unrest makes people very nervous about the political situation in the Middle East. But if, if you look at things like inventory, supply and demand, and so forth, uh, you would think the price would be $40 instead of $90. It, it really is not justified by the fundamentals. But that, I mean, that's, that's a pretty strong claim. How, I mean, when was the last time that prices were $40? Uh, it was five or six years ago. Uh, and, in fact, the market was a bit tighter than it is now, um, oddly enough. Uh, there was less surplus capacity. Inventories were lower. Demand was growing more strongly. Um, the thing is that uh, people, uh, traders and analysts often react to sort of the last six weeks of the market. So they say, is the market tightening? The price should go up as opposed to what is the current price level compared to historical levels. Uh, you know, the price for almost the entire history of the oil market was below $30 if you adjust for inflation. So, you know, when you hear people talk about uh, $70 being low, uh, that's pretty much nonsense. Yeah, and yeah, we are hearing seventy dollars low, and I see all the time ninety dollars, a hundred dollars, one hundred fifty, two hundred, and you can. It's almost it's almost some sort of geometric function that they that they foresee uh, the future prices being. So, but to st- to step back just into the the mechanism of prices in general, you you mentioned that it's set by traders, and to some listeners that might be. A new concept because we think we buy our oil from you know a gas station which is directly connected to an oil company, and it hasn't always been uh, the the price hasn't always been determined by traders in the way that it is now. So could you explain the dynamics of that system? Well, actually, uh, you know, 30 years ago when I was first working in this industry, 
there were no futures markets, and, and ver- trading consisted of people buying a barge load of oil or a tanker load, and yet people still blame speculators for driving the price up. So that, that's kind of funny in that sense. Um, what you have is the entire world is connected by the Internet, and traders, uh, financial traders in places like New York and Rotterdam and Singapore all know to the penny what price is being paid everywhere in the world. And they all buy and sell based on what they think uh, is going on in the market. And a lot of the, the uh, trading is what's called paper barrels. That is, it's people buying contracts for oil as opposed to physical oil. And this is actually not new. Uh, it's been done for commodities for a long time. As a, as a way of sort of protecting farmers against moves, uh, unexpected moves due to weather and so forth. Um, it's, it's more recent in the oil business. Crude just started trading about 1984. But uh, a lot of the, uh, essentially, if you're in the oil business, uh, you may not want to go out and buy a tanker load to lock in a price, but you can buy a futures contract and lock in the price. But at the same time, uh, if you're a hedge fund and you think that, you know, what happens in Egypt may spread to, say, Iran, then you decide you're going to buy oil contracts, and that pushes the price up. So to some people, this is this seems unfair. I mean, why, are, why is it that these traders are, quote-unquote, manipulating the market? And certainly when, when prices went up uh, a lot in 2008, a lot of it was, was attributed to speculators, and speculators were demonized. Why is it that, that it's the speculators who are controlling – the prices as against you know the major participants who are drilling for and refining the oil and who are who are actually dealing with the the major quantities of oil well you know i think to to a large extent although you know you can argue that speculation should be regulated a, a bit more than it is now uh, at the same time it, they're really a mirror on expectations you know if exxon thought the price should be $50 they would go in the market and they would short the price of oil uh, if a lot of hedge funds did, they would they would also short the price of oil. So, it, you know, in that sense, it's I think it's more the fact that uh, the price of oil has been high for about five years. Uh, people think the market ha- have developed the mindset that the market will only tighten. Uh, the major forecasters, like the International Energy Agency and the Department of Energy, are forecasting ever higher prices. So you know that it's it's not so much that it's just a bunch of idiots on Wall Street, for example, or uh, in Chicago who are who are pushing the price around. It's more that you know they read the newspapers, and to be honest, most of them are not that experienced, and they probably don't realize that uh, the IA in Paris has been forecasting higher prices for thirty years. Yeah. So speaking of, of forecasting higher prices and the kinds of predictions that that may go into some of these price increases, let's let's talk about uh, peak oil. So first question with any field of endeavor, what is it? So what exactly is peak oil or peak oil theory? Well, there's there's two schools of thought. The first is that uh, there's a certain amount of oil in the ground, and once you've used about half of it, then production should go down. And some geologists claim that they've made reliable estimates of how much oil is in the ground. And the argument there is it's geology, and you can't do anything about it. It's inevitable, and it's here, or it's even even past, some people would say, by a few years. The other school is that there are people who are saying it's so hard to produce oil. The the investment problems, the technological problems, uh, the political problems 
are so great that uh, oil production is not going to keep up with demand, and so probably oil production will tend to go down. Uh, I would argue that both schools are uh, somewhere between naive, ignorant, but certainly wrong. Okay, well, and we'll, we'll definitely uh, definitely get to that. And you're definitely uh, the the advocates of peak oil are not not fond of you. If any if anyone does a search for for Michael Lynch and peak oil on the web, they will they will quickly find that out. Uh, but just to to get even more clarity on what on what the idea is, it seems like there are there are even among the two the two different approaches you mentioned, there are kind of two dimensions to peak oil. So one, which you, you were focusing on is that the, that the production of oil is going to peak. And whether it's this, we know that we're past the halfway point of the amount of oil that's quote in the ground and whatever that means, we'll talk about that. Or, or this idea of this supply demand uh, being mismatched in a certain way. Both of them, effectively are saying that the production of oil is inevitably going to peak soon. So that seems like one part of it. But the other part that I hear a lot, and if we read books by Matthew Simmons or Colin Campbell or other major advocates of peak oil, is that if or when oil production peaks, it's going to be a worldwide economic disaster. So uh, as we go on through the interview, I want to hit both of those, but it seems like there are those two components. One is is this predictive element about the production levels, and this other is the prediction, this predictive thing about if the production peaks, it's going to be a disaster. And at least, as in my thinking, both of these uh, are problematic. But I want to take them one by one. So the first one is is about the aspects you mentioned, the uh, production, and often when I hear people interview you, they sort of start by asking, "What do you think about peak oil?" Refute peak oil. Uh, but I want to try a little bit of a different approach because peak oil is is a prediction about future oil production. And and I think often people go into these discussions half-cocked. So I'd like to ask you, uh, what are your views on how, how to do oil prediction properly, leaving aside peak oil or non-peak oil? What are the variables we should consider, or to put it a different way, can you give us a kind of oil forecasting 101? Um, yeah, actually, I have an article about five years ago where the point is that the point was a it, it tends to be done very badly, and b it's very hard to do correctly because there's a lot of political interference. In in theory, what you would want to do is say uh, what is the resource base, what is the cost of production, what is the price, and then that would allow you to predict upstream investment. And the results of that investment would give you, you know, discoveries and then capacity. Uh, the problem there is, if you if you look historically, you find there's since the Iranian oil crisis, when people sort of went from a, a mix of optimists and pessimists, and all the the optimists were discredited for some reason by the Iranian oil crisis, which was uh, not a supply problem but a political problem. Uh, there's been, uh, you know. Uh, almost overwhelming pessimism about oil supply. And the problem is people look at, say, uh, Argentina, and they say, oh, they're not finding much oil, therefore there's not much oil there. And the reality is that Argentina um, had very strict price controls. The, the companies had to sell the oil they found at a quarter of the world price, so nobody drilled. And when they deregulated, uh, drilling went down, and partly because they, they uh, privatized the National Oil Company, which is usually a good idea. 
Uh, drilling went down, and production shot up far beyond what anybody thought was possible. Um, so the problem is to predict oil supply in a given country, you have to know what their tax policies are going to be, uh, their access uh, policies. You know, no com- country in the world outside the U.S. allows free and open drilling um, in private land. The governments maintain the mineral rights, and so what happens is in a place like Nigeria or Norway, they will say, okay, we are releasing this section for bids for drilling. Um, And so, unfortunately, when people look at historical drilling and discoveries, they tend not to factor in the fact that, well, maybe the taxes were too high so nobody drilled, or the country uh, didn't release any, any territory for drilling for years and years. And when you say predict the next 20 years, you're asking primarily predict what the government's upstream policies are going to be. And that's what makes it at the national level extremely difficult to do. So what about some of those? So we have the element of political risk, which I can see is an enormous, enormous element, both in knowing how much is going to be produced, but also even knowing the the uh, exploratory p- potential of a region. But what about uh, other things like, you know, given, imagine you had, imagine you had, just to abstract away certain elements here, imagine you had free markets throughout the world. How would you, how would you engage in predictions about future production of oil and how would you have any idea as to is it going to peak anytime soon? Right. Um, what's the future going to be? Well, uh, what you can look at is the physical factors like the production per well or the discoveries per barrel, the, uh, per foot drilled, or you know how many how many wells have been drilled. You know the, the drilling density in a country. Um, so you know you look at the U.S. and uh, the average well produces about 10 barrels a day and has done so for, for I don't know, four to five decades. And you go to places like Latin America and you find that wells, the average well produces 200, 300, 400 barrels a day. And you say, you know, clearly uh, this is an area where uh, the cost cannot possibly be so high that, that uh, it's not profitable. So it, people would drill more in these areas. Uh, the drilling density, you know, in 1970 when the U.S. peaked, uh, we had more wells per, you know, square kilometer of uh, uh, prospective area, uh, about 30 times as much as the rest of the world. And they're still not even close. I mean, it'll be decades before the rest of the world catches up. So you have to say, you know, yeah, it seems, it seems unreasonable to think that a country like Colombia, for example, uh, might have uh, might still have uh, be able to increase production a lot, and yet you find that uh, they changed their fiscal system. They opened up for new investment a couple years ago, and uh, their production is now going up. And it looks like they'll set a new record, which the peak oil people would tell you was completely impossible. What kind of production levels are we talking about there? Well, there we're talking uh, not not. I mean, uh, this is a, a medium-sized producer. Uh, but uh, they've actually reached, uh, they're, they're threatening to reach, I uh, think, about a million barrels a day. Uh, I have the data right here, if you can wait two seconds. Um, they're up now about 700,000 barrels a day, uh, and actually the previous peak was about 850. Um, and like I say, it's rising because they've got a lot of small companies, uh, actually including some people who left Venezuela uh, for political reasons. Uh, and decided the climate was more favorable in Colombia, so production's going up there. Uh, Colombia is not a major factor in the world oil market, but if you think that there's five, ten, fifteen countries like Colombia, 
you know, Oman, Yemen, Argentina, that can all add uh, small increments every year, uh, it adds up. And uh, that's a big part of what's happened is that after the price collapse in 98, people were not drilling in a lot of those countries, and now they're drilling there again. And, and production, you know, is confounding people as it starts rising in these areas. So um, continuing on this this idea of what this oil forecasting 101 uh, can you explain the relationship between some of the terminology because i think this this often trips people up because they hear about reserves deposit estimated ultimately retrievable reserves what are what are the basic uh terms in oil forecasting and and how do they interrelate okay uh probably the most overarching term is oil in place and that refers to the amount of oil in the ground uh Ultimately, recoverable resource is what geologists use, and what it means is the portion of the oil in the ground that we think can be recovered with current technology and economics. They don't try to predict the long-term um, uh, technological development. So what happens is you find if you go back 50 years, pe people said, oh, there's a, bill, uh, a trillion barrels in the ground. And in the 70s, they said there's $2 trillion, and now they say there's 3 to 4 And that's the recoverable portion, which is about 35 to 40 percent of the actual oil in the ground. Uh, proved reserves uh, is a technical term in the industry, which means we have found this, we have demonstrated this with high confidence. So when an oil company says we have a billion barrels of proved reserves in this field, it means the field is probably a lot bigger than that, maybe even two or three times as big. Um, but that's, that's sort of what they've ascertained based on drilling and, and intensive study. Uh, the SEC especially does not like companies to sort of, you know, make, make uh, rank guesses about what might be in the ground because it affects their stock market valuation. So you have to be careful because the data that's most widely available is proved reserves, uh, which is it's kind of, as Maury Edelman, my mentor, pointed out, it's like an inventory. It's how much you found and is ready to, to go into market. Um, people make estimates of undiscovered oil, which are, you know, obviously highly speculative. They also estimate, well, probable reserves or potential reserves, which are less certain. But what you find over time is, you know, somebody will say, oh, we have a billion barrels of proved reserves in this field, and 10 years later they'll say, well, it was a 1.5. And another five years later, they'll say it's 1.8. So you have to be very careful with those numbers. Um, and when you talk about, you know, ultimately recoverable reserves, the peak oil people tend to mix that up with, with proved reserves and sometimes treat them as the same. Um, and they tend to leave out the word recoverable because they don't want to admit that they're talking about only a fraction of the oil that's actually in the ground. They kind of slide by that one. So it seems odd to me that the geologist's focus would be on this economic concept, which is uh, which is proved reserves, as against the the oil in place, which would seem to be their primary uh, purview. At least the more theoretical academic people, I can see how the petroleum geologist for a given company would need to know: okay, how much oil is in the ground that we can get on this time period and sell it at a profit? But why is there that focus? No, why is the focus so diverted away from oil in place, especially given that historically what we've seen is that more and more types of oil and locations of oil become recoverable when they were not recoverable before? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, 
you know, I, I'm sort of one of the few people. The, the U.S. Geological Survey, for example, does these estimates occasionally, and I'm one of the few people who points out that they're actually being conservative and they have a history of being conservative. Uh, most of the peak oil people attack them as being, you know, just uh, uh, Pollyannas or something. Um, I, I think it's just that geologists are very conservative, and they would rather be able to say, oh, look, we, we managed to, you know, find more oil than we predicted, as opposed to, wait a minute, you told us there was all this oil there, and it's not there. You will see, for example, estimates, which are, you know, I hate to say rank guesses, but as estimates of the oil off uh, Greenland, where nobody until recently had done any drilling. And, and that's really uh, much more uh, speculative and problematic. But I, I think it's that they don't want to get caught out uh, predicting things like, uh, will the recovery rate go up another 10% in 30 years? Uh, that uh, some people in the past who've been, shall we say, uh, very optimistic and, and given high numbers have taken a, a lot of grief for that. So I, I, I think the, the idea is that uh, they'd, ra they'd rather come in low than high. Uh, I find that ironic given that in other areas of energy that I've studied, such as so-called green energy, the tendency is exactly the opposite. That is to assume uh, you know, rates of being able to harness energy that there's absolutely no evidence for and that do not materialize in the least. So you have this this uh, undue pessimism with regard to oil and uh, very much undue optimism with regard to the, the so-called green technologies. Yeah, people, uh, people have actually pointed out that, you know, one of the reasons some of these things have not come through was the assumption that uh, conventional energy will see no technological progress while, you know, green energy and new technologies will. And, and that's 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 a long time problem, and and yeah, you're right. It reflects a bias on the part of the the, the individuals involved. So, as uh, looking for, actually, I was going to say looking forward. I'll ask you about the the future. But one more question, just on the present and our on our ability uh, to forecast the future. I think when people hear estimates of how much oil is in the ground or which is often conflated with with proved reserves as you said they imagine that somehow geologists have this giant mri that's just scanned the entire globe and that they know exactly how much oil is in there and that's just a you know given quantity and that's it and you mentioned that with your first characterization of one of the schools of peak oil how far from the truth is that kind of mri view um yeah, I know uh, Matt Simmons, who you mentioned before, expressed shock at, at, at you know when he read a, a paper by a geologist that expressing uncertainty about what was under the ground. But uh, one of my colleagues once remarked that they they visited, uh, I think it was the Kern River field in California, which has been producing for a hundred years, and and the geologist there said, you know, we know every inch of this field, but we still couldn't tell you how much oil is there. Um, it's you know it's an imprecise science uh just as medicine is you can you can get a sense of the rocks but you don't necessarily have a a, a precise idea of exactly how much oil is under the ground um and, and you d just don't know how much you're going to get out i mean i think people are constantly surprised by the technological innovations that uh allow people to come up with better ways to get oil out of the ground or ways to cut costs uh, so that oil, which was not economic, has become economic. 
Um, and, you know, if you think about it, uh, 50 years ago, people were drilling in a 100 feet of water, and now we're drilling in 5,000, 8,000 feet of water. But similarly, people are going back to old fields and saying, you know, we only took 30% of the oil out. I can get another 8%, which is, you know, translates into 130 million barrels or something. Um, and it's, it's because a lot of that is happening on a small scale you don't necessarily see it. You know, companies, when they find a big field and they plan to develop it, they announce it in some detail. But when they go in and drill a few more wells or do some more computer analysis in the old field, that doesn't make the newspapers. So what is your forecast for, you know, the next 5, 10, 15? And you can uh, attach a probability to this <laughs> since I know it's not an exact science. And uh, I'm sure you and everyone else in the business have made re- you know, right and wrong forecasts. But what is your forecast? And I'll ask you to subdivide that into kind of what is the theoretic, you know, what would be the potential if it weren't for all this government intervention? Then given all the government intervention, what do you see it being in reality? Um, you know, the potential is is enormous. I mean, there's lots of oil out there. Uh, you know, the Saudis produce from something like six or seven fields, and they have another 70 that they've found and, and aren't producing. Um, that's that's you know the ex- most extreme case, but what you're seeing now is uh, you know people finding lots of oil, not just in places like Brazil where you know that makes the news, but in, in places like West Africa, India they just found uh, a, a small company from I think Canada called Cairn found a billion barrel onshore field, one of the first big finds in a long time, and it just reflects the fact that, they, you know, they opened up a little bit in India. If they opened up a bit more, they'd get more drilling, and they'd, they'd surely have a lot more oil production. So, you know, over the next 5 to 15 years, I think uh, we're going to see a lot more oil produced. Uh, there's almost certainly going to be heavy pressure on the price to bring it back down at least below $50, maybe below $40. Um, but the thing is, there's just there's so much conventional oil out there. Um, there's so much potential for increase. And, at, you know, at $70, $80, people can make a lot of money producing oil. And partly people forget resource nationalism tends to be cyclical. When the price is high, a lot of governments are more restrictive in allowing upstream investment. And, they, they, you know, they're, they're tougher in terms of raising taxes and, and putting additional uh, constraints and demands on the oil companies. When prices go down, they relax those. And, you know, classic case was Venezuela, which almost everybody thought was just a mature, declining producer in the 1980s. And then uh, they actually had uh, a socialist president who sort of came up with the realization that, gee, socialism isn't working out so good, and and tried reforming the economy. Uh, And their production boomed. Uh, just before, unfortunately, Hugo Chavez came in and, and sort of uh, trashed it again. So, um, you know, I, I, I would be very surprised if five or ten years from now uh, the price would be above $50, uh, and almost certainly we would not be just pe- – people will be back to where they were in the 1980s when they're saying, oh, my God, we totally missed this. Uh, and really everybody got it – almost everybody got it completely wrong in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and and that they misinterpreted uh, political constraints for physical and geological constraints. So when when you make your prediction like that, how much of it is? Um, and I guess this is a good good chance to ask you and to fold into this question: 
what what exactly do you do so the the audience can know because you're you're someone who's actually in the field making money predicting this whereas many of the commenters on peak oil don't have the nuts and bolts and concrete experience so what what's going into this uh, prediction because people will say well how you know how can you be so sure are you just being sort of blindly optimistic that we'll find more oil or are there specific areas that you know about or are there general principles that you're applying how exactly is this prediction uh, you know coming to pass mm-hmm. um, I, I would not like to pretend it's a hundred percent certain by any means uh, but I've analyzed forecasting and models extensively over the 30 some years now um, and so part that's part of it but you know what I do is I look out at the resource base and I look at a place like Oman or Colombia and say do they have a lot of oil that can be produced economically and then you say you know in the short to medium term are they open to new investment uh, and and thus is their production likely to go up uh, and in, in the very long term you, you can't really say what will Colombian oil production be 20 years from now but if you aggregate, say, Latin America, uh, you can say, look, there's, there's lots of oil there, and probably, you know, most of these countries need money. Um, and since the oil can be produced economically, even at 40 or $50 a barrel, you have to expect that there will be a general tendency to see them uh, try to increase production. Now, you certainly go through cycles, as we've seen this past 10 years, where, you know, political problems in a tight market push prices up, and then uh, maybe some countries like Angola or Kazakhstan say, you know, they, they start to believe the peak oilers, as, as a few people do, or they at least think, ah, well, the price has to go up forever, so therefore we can tighten the screws on, on the investors. Um, and you will have periods like that, but, uh, you know, it, it is kind of bizarre when you have sort of five years of high prices every 30 years and people think, oh, the, the five years are the norm and the 25 years are somehow abnormal. Yeah, but uh, they, I mean, they, it's they're kind of claiming vindication, and this is this is all along they believe that the prices should be skyrocketing. So when they get any any little whiff of vindication, it's it's time to jump on it and to write. I don't know how many dozen books on peak oil I've seen in the. It's almost impossible to learn about oil from Amazon because you do a search for oil, and every book is about peak oil. It's it's really remarkable how how popular it is. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because if you go back to the '70s, I mean, I used to in the in the early '80s, I would I would give a lecture and I would just carry a stack of books and I would say, look at all these books on oil, they're all wrong, um, and a lot of it is, you know, there was the old joke. Uh, oh boy, I'm dating myself about you, you know the joke about the elephant and the Jewish problem. No, but I, I want to know it. Okay. Uh, it's, this, I guess it's like a hundred years ago at the Sorbonne or something, write a paper about the elephant and the French writes, the, the French student writes about the love life of the elephant and the German writes about the military use of the elephant and the Jewish student writes about the elephant and the Jewish problem. And, you know, it, oil is like that. You get demographers writing about population and oil or, uh, foreign exchange experts writing about, you know, foreign exchange and oil. And the vast majority of them don't really know that much about oil. Uh, they're just taking their interest and attaching it to a popular subject. Um, and, you know, I, frankly, you see a lot of the same in global warming, although I don't claim to be an expert on that. But um, peak oil is something where uh, if you look at the books, the vast majority of them start by reading one or two other books, 
and then assuming those books are correct and then, you know, putting their own spin on it. What does this mean for green energy? What does this mean for Middle East politics and so forth? Um, very few of the people writing about peak oil are really knowledgeable about the oil industry. And those who are knowledgeable about the oil industry are primarily geologists who, who don't do forecasting of supply. Um, you know, they do estimates. They, you know, they study rocks and they try to estimate how much is in the ground. But that's very different from forecasting what is essentially an economic activity that is the investment, uh, exploration, discovery, and production of oil. Well, and that that gets us right into into uh, the the crux of peak oil itself. And I'm gonna I tried to aggregate all of the major claims about peak oil, lest anyone I mean anyone who's read my work knows I do not agree with peak oil. But I I, I don't want to be seen as as a patsy for you or for big oil or, or anyone. Although some big oil people like peak oil theory because promises them high prices. But anyway, let's let's go through some of the uh, the the major claims of peak oil, and one of them is is that it's that this is what geologists believe, and that in particular this has been proven by Marion King Hubbard, who correctly predicted a peak in production in the lower forty eight states uh, by around nineteen seventy, and that that his prediction and his curve uh, sort of definitively shows that oil runs out at a certain rate, and therefore all of the oil is going to run out at a certain rate, whereas and to, to add to that, I think part of the premise is it's the geologists who should be telling us if oil is peaking, right? Because they're the ones who know how much oil there is. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's, that's a common argument, and it, it has a number of flaws in it. First, you know, Hubbard was apparently a very good geophysicist, um, but when he did the Hubbard curve, he said, well, you know, production follows any path, but for the U.S., it kind of looks like a bell curve, so I'll do a bell curve. And then, like like stock market analysts, sometimes he got he got lucky, uh, and the peak was roughly where he said it would be for U.S. oil production. Um, if you look around the world, though, you find that uh, gee, it almost never works. The bell curve uh, doesn't appear in most countries. Maybe three quarters or four fifths of the countries do not look at all like a bell curve. And the people who've used the bell curve to try to predict productions have been wrong again and again and again. Uh, he himself tried to apply, you know, the, the, the bell curve has no explanatory variables. It's essentially extrapolating a production trend. So when high prices in the, in the 80s meant lower U.S. natural gas demand, he thought that was geology and extrapolated it into the future and found that the U.S. would cease producing natural gas somewhere around 2000. Which well, that, that happened, right? We yeah, don't produce any gas about, yeah, anymore. Yeah, we're all dead now. Uh, you know, so um, it, a lot of some of the some of the peak oil people finally sort of admitted that this was wrong. But you know, it, it, thanks to the internet, there's still people going and finding you know twelve year old articles saying, "Aha, geology proves that uh, peak you know that oil production has to follow a bell curve." And and you know, most of these people are fairly naive and ignorant, and they don't realize that, you know, they, they can't take the time to look at, say, Australian production or British production or Venezuelan and go, wow, that's not a bell curve at all. So, um, just oh, in so terms the of second the second question is the uh, geologist. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is funny because the number of people try to say this is a debate between economists and geologists, and that's completely false. Uh, any number of prominent geologists have said this is all nonsense. 
uh, Marlon Downey, who was a former president of the American Association of Petroleum Geology, uh, as well as William Fisher, uh, and uh, one of the probably the most prominent uh, petroleum geologists in the 20th century, Michael Halbutis. You know, he had done an estimate of resources back in the 70s. And later he said, look, uh, the limits are our imagination, and the, the physical constraints are just not there. Um, and the peak oil people just say, well, these guys are idiots, don't listen to them, which is kind of a, a standard refrain. Okay, so, I mean, to, to say you're, that it's, you're doing an economic analysis and, and integrating um, economic considerations is not to say that you ignore geologists or you're somehow uh, – you somehow hermetically sealed in a separate room and you ignore them and just expect uh, expect oil to follow some economic model. Right. No, that's true. And, th- and this is why, I mean, a lot of economists don't even try to forecast oil supply in any rigorous manner because the, the efforts in the past, people will sort of say, here's the amount of drilling, here's the amount of oil found, uh, extrapolate the trend, and it doesn't work. And partly it's because... Uh, the amount of oil found is is not a precise number. Um, you know, you find 20 years later that oh, they really found you know 30 or 130 percent more than they reported at the time, and therefore your data is all all rotten. But also because you know you you wind up if you do an econometric analysis, you wind up saying, oh, you know, I'm just folding in all these political things and and you know assuming them away. Uh, and extrapolating them as physical and economic trends. And, and the geologists run into this problem. It's, you know, I hate to blame Bill Gates, but n- now that Microsoft is available, you have sort of retired geologists who, who figured out that they can make graphs, and they look at a graph and they go, wow, I see a trend here. Okay, what causes the trend? Well, it must be geology. What a coincidence. Um, and then they extrapolate it. And you, you've had any number of cases where... Uh, political events like when the when the soviet union collapsed and the economy collapsed and oil demand collapsed and they couldn't they 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 had export constraints so they they had to shut in production and uh... the peak oil people said ah it's going down it will keep going down forever uh... or there was an accident in the british north sea and production went down for a couple years and they extrapolated that out to say aha british production will cease sometime around you know two thousand and five so, you know, it, it's unfortunately, it's, it's a very difficult problem. You have to say, what, it, what does the geology tell us about what's available? And, you know, roughly, what are the economics of production? And then try to figure out how much investment will be allowed uh, to try to forecast that. And it, there's uh, clearly elements of guesswork there. So another, another claim by peak oil advocates is that most of the oil has already been discovered, and they'll show you this graph that says that discoveries peaked many decades ago, and you know we need obviously need to discover oil to be able to produce oil. Ergo, if discoveries are going down, that's a forward-looking indicator that production is going to go down. Yeah, I, that, I've seen that graph many times. The thing is, the graph comes from data from one company, although it's been reproduced, and so people cite different sources. Uh, because they don't realize that essentially this one company, IHS Energy, uh, produces the, the discovery data. Um, the discovery data is, okay, last year we found this much, but it's not that we found that much. It's This is how much we found we think will be produced. Um, and the company itself says, oh, you know, the, the numbers get revised all the time, and the peak oil people argue, no, they don't, because they're made, the estimates are made by geologists, not economists. 
Um, and then, but when you read their stuff, you see they talk about the revisions that occurred in the data. And, you know, so they're trying to have it both ways. Um, they've actually sort of denounced the, the original company that produced the data was called Petro Consultants. They were bought out by IHS Energy. So the, uh, the peak oil, uh, the founder of the Association for the Study of Peak Oil, Colin Campbell, has actually said, oh, well, you know, when I looked at the data, it was good and reliable, but it's not reliable anymore because now, you know, the, the consultants are involved. Um, and the thing is, if you, if you look at the world, you will find uh, there's no evidence that these, these discovery estimates are, are reliable in the long term. And especially the, the more recent fields are the ones that are the most likely to grow because you have the, the most basic estimates made. Uh, so it's kind of like saying, oh, my God, apple trees are getting smaller and smaller. The ones planted two years ago are only, you know, 12 feet high, and the ones that are 40 <laughs> years old are, you know, 35 feet high. I mean, it, it's kind of similar to that. So that discovery curve is, I, I hate to say meaningless, but it's not very meaningful. And the main reason you had a big peak 40, 50 years ago was because everybody was drilling in the Middle East, and that's where all the big discoveries were made. When people were shut out of the Middle East and went to places like Argentina and Colombia, uh, they found much smaller fields. Now you're starting to see big fields found again in the Middle East, uh, you know, six, eight billion barrels. But, you know, some of that, it doesn't make it into the data for another three, four, five years because they take a long time to really evaluate the fields. All right. Well, well uh, speaking of the Middle East, uh, Matthew Simmons, or I should say the, the late Matthew Simmons, whom I, I believe credits you uh, in his introduction, interestingly enough, or in the foreword to his book, unless there's another Michael Lynch that he's, uh, that he's actually, thanking. Believe it or not, there's another Michael Lynch who is a petroleum geologist, and he used to work for Saudi Aramco, and that's whom he's crediting. So. Oh, yeah, I was wondering if you had actually worked for uh, <laughs> Saudi Aramco, which is a, a subject for another day, the history yeah. of – that's a very interesting history of that, that company. Well, that's, that's interesting to know. I guess I, I didn't do that part of my homework. So, no, okay, a, so a lot of people get that wrong. Actually, there's a Michael J. Lynch who wrote a book on prison policy that has a chapter on peak oil, which, which is frankly kind of bizarre. All right. Well, that's that's good to know. But in any case, so um, Matthew Simmons did not did not thank you in his book, but he still made the following claim uh, in his book Twilight in the Desert, which is that future optimism about oil really depends on one country. And and obviously you've you've contradicted this in your earlier comments, but he says that it's all about Saudi Arabia and that the misguided and inflated estimates of the International Energy Agency and others, and presumably you, are based on the idea that Saudi Arabia, which is already the leading producer in the world, can double or even double and a half its production. And he says that he did all this inside research and it's very unlikely that's the case and therefore we're really, really in trouble. Yeah, you know, I wrote I wrote a paper. His book was Twilight in the Desert, and I wrote a paper called Crop Circles in the Desert, which picked apart <laughs> the various arguments. And you know, the, the first thing is he, he essentially says, "I read papers by petroleum engineers, and it seems like there there are more and more papers describing more and more problems. Therefore, the Saudis are in big trouble." And you know, my point first of all was, well, there's more and more papers because you've got more and more Saudi 
petroleum engineers than you had, you know, 30 years ago. But also, if you look at the papers, they don't say, oh, my God, there's problems. They say, okay, we ran into this problem, and this is how we fixed it. And he just doesn't even mention that. Um, the other thing is, for the last 30-some years, most people in the business, in the forecasting business, have said, well, everybody outside the Persian Gulf has peaked. Um, and therefore, all new demand has to be met by the Persian Gulf. And uh, that's just not happened. Um, it's partly there's this assumption that, well, there's nothing left to be found in all these other places. And then you have places like the North Sea boom in the 80s, uh, sorry, in the 90s, uh, which caught people by surprise. Uh, you had a lot of smaller countries uh, like uh, Oman and, Ye and Yemen and, and Colombia, which added a lot in the 90s. Um, so, you know, you keep finding that there's – it's not so much that, oh, you know, somebody found another Middle East under, you know, Colorado, but people found a lot of smaller fields. And, you know, they say the oil companies look for elephants, and I always say yes, but they get nibbled to death by ducks. Um, so, you know, we, we've been finding – uh, people have challenged me for decades saying, show me where the oil will be found. And I say, well, I can't tell you where Toyota will build another car factory, but that doesn't make me think there won't be any cars built in the future. Uh, people keep drilling. There's lots of places that haven't been drilled. Uh, and they keep finding oil, and production keeps going up. And, you know, Matt, Matt's argument in the end, he said, well, you know, the petroleum engineers don't think there's a problem with Saudi petroleum, and I'm a banker with a Harvard MBA, and I see a problem. And, and you know, I guess, you know, what does that tell me? It tells me that I see the big picture, and they apparently don't. So... Um to continue on this, the Saudi Arabia tip, one other claim, and this is made by Matt Simmons, but also by many other people, is that the amount of reserves claimed by different countries, especially in OPEC, uh, that that amount is inflated and that they have every incentive to inflate it. And therefore, the future picture of oil is even worse than you might think by looking at the claimed reserves. And they even say the claimed reserves look bad. Yeah, this is this is a funny thing because they they act like oh look we discovered it and you know it gives them some credibility because but uh, you know economists were making this point years before they did um, the fact is that uh, fifty years ago you had geologists reporting estimates and now you have governments reporting estimates so the numbers are less reliable um, but it's the issue is. Uh, how much un, unused, undeveloped oil is lying untapped in some of these countries, which is, you know, not that interesting a question. Because you know, if you look at countries like Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, you can say, gee, there's still lots of oil to be produced there. And if it's 130 years instead of 150 years, does that really matter? So when you, the, the thing is that economists like Peter O'Dell and Maury Edelman myself will say, uh, if you're right, how come reserves don't go down? And they say, oh, but that's because the Middle East reserves were inflated in the 1980s. And, you know, you point out, well, but none of the other reserves, I mean, if you look at the non-Middle East reserves, they keep going up year after year. So, you know, you're, you're missing something here. Um, it, it is hard to engage some of these people in, in actual debate, though. Uh, they usually don't respond to uh, these points. Uh, I've had a number of people who just basically stuck their tongues out at me and, and ran away. And Matt Simmons, frankly, admitted he would not appear with me after uh, I sort of pointed out some of his mistakes in front of a, a large audience. 
Well, yeah. Anyone who wants to do a search on the internet again for Michael Lynch and peak oil, you can expose yourself to uh, to a lot of this. Or if you want a little more civilized version, uh, masterresource.org, where I believe Mike is one of the, the principals, has a lot of good articles by him. Uh, and then some interesting discussions in the, the comments sections, which are often uh, – some some are critical, but, but it, I mean – it's it's really good to get that kind of debate because you really get to find out the nuances of a position by having it by having it challenged. Uh, now, uh, still still focusing on the Middle East, there's another idea, and and you addressed this partially before that production uh, depends on super giant fields like Gowar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and, and Saudi Arabia, and we haven't found any of those for a long time. Nor does it look like we will. So. The world economy depends on supergiant elephant fields. We're having trouble finding those fields. Ergo, we're going to run out of oil. This is, this is what you call a perception bias. Um, you know, the industry prefers to look for supergiant fields instead of little fields, so that's why they, they tend to find them, and that's why most of our oil comes from those fields. Uh, that's And then people... Uh, assume that, well, if they're not looking for little fields, there are no little fields, or they argue that they don't amount to much now, so therefore they never will. Um, and you, that's just generally not the case. I mean, you know, I'd much rather have a 100 billion barrel field than a, a 1 million barrel field, obviously. Um, but people go for where the relative economics uh, point. Um, and, and, you know, if you go back, I, I've heard any number of people say, Oh, we need to find two Saudi Arabia's worth of capacity, or a Saudi Arabia worth of capacity every two years, and and then there's sort of this this logical leap to, and therefore it's impossible. Uh, and the reality is, well, we've been finding, you know, we've been adding about five million barrels a day of capacity, mostly from small or medium-sized fields, uh, for decades. And in fact, Jimmy Carter, in his famous uh, meow speech, moral equivalent <laughs> of war, said. Oh, we need to find a Saudi Arabia worth of production every three years. How can that be possible? Well, you know, here we are. It's almost 35 years later, and production is still going up. Yeah, I find that I find that a particularly interesting point because it has this perceptual plausibility. Yeah, wow, how can you ever replace that? But in fact, in fact, we have, as just as a as a factual matter. Uh, another claim that's made, although I don't, it's. It's sometimes hard to date these claims properly because sometimes they make them in a book and then they end up being wrong, which says something about the theory. But they'll say, well, all the ma- you know, a lot of the major companies are past their peak. They'll say, well, Iran is way past peak. I believe Mexico. I think they've said Kuwait is. Uh, you know, the biggest oil producers, almost all of them, are are past peak. Yes, that's 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 kind of a funny argument because it sounds scary. Although some people will include. You know, little they'll say 35 countries are past peak, and they're including 20 countries that never produce uh, much more than a bucket a day. Um, this gets back to the um, we're extrapolating production. Period. That's our our model. If it's going down, it has to keep going down, um, which is simply wrong. And some some of the reason countries are past peak is because you know taxes were too high, so companies move somewhere else. Uh, and when the taxes come down, production will go up again. You've seen that in places like Colombia, Oman, Egypt. So a, a number of countries which are supposedly past peak then turn out to go up. Uh, I especially love, uh, for instance, people 
some of the major peak oil forecasters said, oh, India and China are on a plateau or, or they're, you know, on the peak, they're at past peak. Um, and both those countries, five, six years later, are still increasing production uh, and rather heftily. And, and there's, there's no thought of, has this country been drilled much? Are there still large fields being found here and so forth? It's just, oh, the last three years production is down. I assume, therefore, it cannot be reversed. Um, and, you know, David Goodstein, who's a plasma physicist, uh, wrote a book on peak oil in which he said, well, mineral production, once it goes down, can never go back up again. And, you know, you would think if you were going to make a claim like that, you'd, you'd at least, you know, take five minutes to look at the data on the Internet and, and see that that's just completely wrong. Yeah, history is not something that people who comment on energy study too much. I mean, peak oil is remarkable, although it hasn't always been called that, just in terms of since at least the 1870s, you have prominent geologists saying there's going to be no more oil in X amount of time, and it's just it has, it has basically no predictive success at all besides Hubbard's one sort of partially correct prediction out of many, out of many false ones, and of course they ignore the false ones because they don't confirm the theory. But to start uh, wrapping up on this, just one more on peak oil. I have to include this one. All the easy oil has been found. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, uh, I, I, I have, this, this is basically people complaining about their jobs. My job is so hard. Um, the reality is, you know, my <laughs> grandfather started in the 19th century in West Virginia. I assume he used a mule to, to move his rig. Uh, if you ever worked with mules, you'd be amazed to hear that, you know, taking a drill ship out and pressing a few buttons is, is the hard oil. Um, the fact of the matter is, in, in theory, you, you, what you do is you find the best stuff first, and so therefore you're finding worse and worse stuff. The reality is a lot lumpier, but it's also you get better at finding it. So when you look at cost, costs tend not to go up. It's you know, I mean, the the ancient Greeks, the Bronze Age started about 5,000 years ago. We're still using copper to make pennies. Uh, you know, nobody's ever run out. This is very ahistorical. You know, nobody's ever run out of a non-renewable resource like oil. Um, it's it's always the things like whales, the renewable resources like whales and red snappers and sea turtles that we, that we run out. Um, the idea that the finite nature of the resource is relevant uh, is is essentially uh, simplistic to the point of being fallacious. Yeah, so all, all the easy ones. Yeah, I just think about the, if you look at the actual history of what it took, say, to, in, I think around 1900 where they're first exploring for oil in Persia and they're hauling things for 2,000 miles via mule and that's that's easy oil. Supposedly, but today you have you know state of the art oil rigs and leaving aside post BP hysteria. I mean, those are some of the safest places you could be, and you know you have this you have robots doing it all for you. So it's 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 pretty amazing how how uh, how hard easy oil is and how easy hard oil is in certain ways. Thanks to thanks to ingenuity. So all of this raises the question of why do they believe it? Why, why, are you so, why, why are you so unpopular and why is peak oil so popular? What is its appeal to the intellectuals and what is, is its appeal to the public? Well, you know, a number of colleagues have remarked on, on sort of the, the fanaticism that they, they run into when they, they make some comment uh, that disagrees with peak oil. I, I think there's, there's a number of threads. 
you know, one is there are people in the industry who like to say, oh, my God, things are, you know, things are hard and getting harder. Um, there's a tendency in a lot of industries to predict rising prices, uh, you know, regardless of the historical uh, situation. Um, you also have, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people who believe in sort of the end of the world and the millennium and people who hate modern society, you know, ascetics or, or have, have always been a threat in, in all major religions. And so you get people who, who want to seize on something. You know, Colin Campbell, the, the original peak oil guy in the 19, late 80s, said, oh, you know, it used to be so wonderful that everybody went down to the pub and now everybody stays home and watches TV. Um, and, of course, you have people like uh, environmentalists who, who don't like the oil industry, think oil is dirty, and would like to see us. You know, would like to see a rationale for why we should accelerate the development of uh, expensive and uncompetitive uh, um, uh, technologies like electric cars or photovoltaics. So it's, it's you know, this will be a chapter in my book, actually. It's, it's a wide variety of, of, of things that have kind of come together uh, and bound this, this uh, I don't know what you would call it. I hate to call it a religious uh, cult. But uh, near near cult like devotion to the concept of peak oil, uh, but there are there are people who do a little research and go, you know, I'm I'm concerned about this. Uh, you know, I mean, I knew one geologist. He said, uh, I I worked in Peru and we stopped finding oil, so you know that that makes me worry. So you know, it's not that everybody is is uh, foolish or naive or Machiavellian, but uh, there are a lot of people like that. Yeah, I think there's a certain sophistication involved, or at least a certain amount of knowledge involved of economics and the nature of resources to understand how how resources work and the role of the mind in continually discovering and creating resources out of previously useless uh, raw materials, which are, of course, you know, throughout throughout the earth. So, uh, well, actually, quickly give us a plug for your book and when it's going to come out. <laughs> Uh, I don't know when it's going to come out. It's going to be called The Peak Oil Scare, How uh, Bad Analysis Led Many Astray, something to that effect. I'm hoping it'll be out this year. I'm, I'm working uh, hard on it, and uh, it, sh- it should be quite an entertaining read. Yeah, well, you've definitely, you've definitely uh, whet my appetite. That's, that sounds really exciting. So as a final question, which I think gets to the, the philosophy of peak oil, what do you think is what do you think of the the view if we can if we can sort of accept stipulate that okay you could say at some point in some future let's say we can't find a way to create oil or synthesize oil there will be some point at which oil peaks you know probably because we find something better uh, not, and I don't think that's a big deal but the assumption is that if if there's if you hit some maximum in oil production that that's automatically going to lead to this cataclysm and worldwide collapse and that humans will have no way of adapting to it and that, that strikes me as as very wrong given the nature of prices and, and ingenuity and adaptation I'm curious what what you think about the kind of post peak apocalyptic nature of of their view, yeah. I mean, this is this is a funny case of uh, where theory and reality actually come together. I mean, theory says as you slowly use the stuff up, then at some point costs go up and people conserve more and they switch to other things. Um, and you know, if you if the the peak oil people make a lot of very stringent assumptions to lead them to the oh my god, production will collapse sharply. 
Um, and if you relax those and make them more realistic, you don't get that. Uh, you know, when was the last time you used uh, synthetic natural gas from coal to provide lighting for your house? I mean, we, uh, they're actually, one of the peak oil guys said, oh, we've never had more than one or two energy transitions. Well, we've had dozens. I mean, we don't use animal fat candles. We don't use uh, ethanol to, to light uh, lamps. Uh, railroads don't run on wood or coal anymore. Uh, some of them, a lot of them use electricity. You know, we've seen these again and again, and you may find, for example, when the railroads switched from coal to oil, it hurt the coal industry, but it was, you know, society didn't even notice. So it's all, it's sort of saying, uh, kind of as the limits to growth people said, uh, ignore reality and trust my model. I mean, I know that economists are accused of, of, of taking that attitude, but this is a case where uh, a broader community does that. It, you know, the model says we're all going to die, and, and we all know computer models are never wrong. So, you know, the reality is uh, if you're Easter Island, you might have trouble, but uh, global society has never run out of any non-renewable resource, has never run into any major long-term physical constraint, and there's no signs we're going to anytime soon. And just as a tiny follow-up to that, do you, do you see any threat to that in just the amount of nationalization that exists in the world? Because that's, that's what concerns me, not any sort of inherent tendency to, quote, run out of oil, but rather the fact that so much of it is controlled by governments, including even progressively in the U.S., by, by our government. Um, yes, I mean, that is a problem. It's more of a, uh, it, it's not so much a physical constraint as a policy constraint, and hopefully a transient one. But because there's a lot of oil just everywhere, um, it, in the end, you know, you had the wonderful example of Pierre Trudeau in Canada 30 years ago who said, oh, we need to keep the gas and oil in the ground for our grandchildren. Um, and then the price collapsed, and, and he, he left office, and his successor wound up selling it all at a fraction of the price. Um, you know, this is, this is the thing, is that there, there are enough people out there willing to sell oil. Uh, it is a concern if you have too much national, nat nationalization or uh, growth amongst national oil companies that have access to government funds. Um, but I think in, in the longer run, there's just enough places that those people are going to need the money. They're going to have to expand production. So, you know, hopefully they'll all there'll be more deregulation and privatization uh, over the next decade. Uh, but at any rate, I think even even places like Saudi Arabia, they're going to try to produce enough oil to to su supply their society with the the revenue they need. All right. Well, that's. That's all really fascinating stuff. I, I learned a lot. I hope I'm sure the audience uh, learned a lot as well. Where can uh, they find more of your work? Uh, Energyseer.com, E-N-E-R-G-Y-S-E-E-R.com has, has my work, some of it, and uh, I'm trying to set up a new uh, uh, website called thepetroleumguy.com, which over the next month or so you should see a lot of papers and such up there. Did you reserve the domain name? Yes, I did. All right. Well, that's, that, that's very exciting. Uh, well, Mike, thanks again uh, for being on the show and best, best of luck with your book, which I, I, I wish was available tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Our Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Thanks again to Michael Lynch for coming on the program. Uh, we went a little long on the interview, but I think it was worth it. 
Uh, we were probably power hour and a quarter today. Uh, but I really wanted to get in all the major peak oil claims since they're so common and since I didn't want anyone to say, oh, you forgot to ask this, you forgot to ask that. Now I'm sure that'll happen, but uh, at least I tried my best. And of course, feel free to email me at alex at alexepstein.com if you want to ask me uh, questions about peak oil or if you want me to ask future guests questions about peak oil. Anyway, since we went long, I'll keep my closing comments short this episode, and I'll refer you to some resources on the web uh, for more information. But the one thing I want to stress as a takeaway from the interview is that when we look at past, present, and future oil production, which is what peak oil is, is talking about, we have to always consider the role of technology, economics, and politics, not just geology. So let me say that again. We have to consider the role of technology, economics, and politics, not just geology. And this was a huge theme, I think, during the whole interview. The economics of the market determine whether it's worthwhile in the first place to prospect to oil for oil, uh, to find out whether it exists even, uh, whether it's worthwhile to explore a given field, whether it's worthwhile to drill a given field, whether it's worthwhile to invest in new technology to get new forms of oil like Canada's enormous tar sands. And then politics can make it much more expensive or even impossible to find and drill for oil in a given area. So when you would hear that production in X country has, quote, peaked, keep that in mind. It's likely that there's a lot of oil in the ground there, but that economic and political considerations make it not worth drilling. And in the case of purely economic considerations, there's nothing wrong with if, you know, if the price of oil is plummeting and it's no longer affordable to drill in some part of the U.S., it's understandable that, yeah, production is going to fall there. That's that's a proper reaction. What we really need to look out for, though, is the political restrictions, is when political considerations make it difficult or impossible to drill for necessary oil, because then we're talking about unnecessary uh, unnecessary destruction um, and poverty inflicted on us by government policies. Anyway, there's a lot more to say on this issue, so I'm going to link to several of Michael Lynch's articles on my Facebook page, Note about this month's Power Hour, and I'll also relink to my article, The Six Myths About Oil, which has my own take on peak oil. Now, the link to that page and all of the supplemental material I'll, I'll give this month is facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. That's facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something, and if you did and think it's important information, as always, please tell your friends and colleagues about it any way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to iTunes and search for Alex Epstein or go for my Facebook page for a link. Uh, and to subscribe to the newsletter, just email alex at alexepstein.com, subject subscribe. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting topic and guest. Uh, I'll announce them in the next newsletter. And actually, uh, that's, that's been my policy in the past, but we're going to change it a little bit. The next episode should be um, – it should be coming along with the April newsletter. I'm going to start doing these on the first of the month so you can know that the first of every month, this is your time to get your one-hour jolt of energy wisdom and energy goodness. And at the same time, we'll have the newsletter coming out so it'll all be easy to remember, easy to find. Anyway, until the next episode, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour.